With that, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. God, you may be seated. Thank you so much, Becca. We had just finished our series on 1 John. We're going to be starting a new series on the patriarchs. Now, what are what is a patriarch? Who are the patriarchs? Why are the patriarchs? A patriarch is a is the male founder of a people. Hebrews 7, 4 names Abraham as one of those patriarchs. But throughout the Old Testament, there will be a saying when they want to refer to God, but they don't want to use the name of the Lord. They'll say, the, um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is how they told the nations about their God, is that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are the patriarchs of the, of the Jewish people. Once again, a patriarch, the simple definition would be, um, once again, the male um, leader or, or um, originator of a people is also the one who led the people as well. Patriarchs, especially the word patriarchy, has, has had a complete shift in the meaning in our recent times. Through the ideology of the third wave feminism, it becomes a boogeyman or the devil. Everything is blamed on the patriarchy. You must smash the patriarchy. Even believers, um, even supposed Christian pastors, they will, they, will make, they will attribute everything to the supposed patriarchy. We should always worry when we are more in the world systems than in God systems because we might find ourselves running right against God instead. God established this patriarchy, the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tuesday is Valentine's Day, and there is a sort of love story within the stories of the patriarchs of Jacob and Rachel. Um, however, uh, that story is that of tainted love instead of true love. 
Um, I was going to be preaching on that today. In fact, I have a sermon I preached in my last church called Tainted Love, and I was going to be preaching on that this week, and my wife told me, I think you preached it here, but I looked on our website, and I didn't see it. So I'm like, okay, and I had a busy week, so I was like, okay, I'll rework this sermon. And it still takes a lot of work to rework a sermon, but it's not as much as from the beginning. And as I was finishing up, I was like, okay, well, let me just look on Facebook And it turns out I did not upload one of my sermons to the website, and that sermon was Tainted Love. So I was like, okay, this is a sign from God. I have to start over, and we're just going to start with the beginning of the patriarchs of Abraham's, um, who is known as Abram, um, at uh, at the beginning of his story in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, um, or Abram in the scripture, um, his name means exalted father. We're going to be in the book of Genesis. We're going to be book of the Genesis for for quite a while here, looking at the patriarchs. And the book of Genesis, Genesis means the book of the beginnings. We have there in the beginning, God. God is pre-existent. He is not created. He does not come from the ether. No, he is already there. The story of Genesis can be seen as a story of a family. Of a family that starts off good, is then broken, shattered, dispersed, and then there's hope for redemption or renewing of that family. At the very beginning, we have God, self-existent. He makes the heavens and the earth in six days. On this day, he does this. On this day, he does this. And on the sixth day, he looks at his creation. He says, it is very good. Adam had been created this time, and he looks at Adam, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And then he takes one of his ribs, and he makes Eve. This is good. They are the first family, our first mother, our first father. Abraham, in the book of Luke, when it's going through the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it says Abraham, the son of God. They are a family with the Lord. And then, of course, we know the fall. Sin enters the picture. The snake comes in, whispering his lies. Did God really say and believe this? Every lie that has ever existed owes its its origination back to the first lie. Did God really say The snake comes into the garden, and Adam and Eve, they eat from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes are open. And then God, their father, comes into the garden, and he asks, where are they? And they said, we didn't want want you to see us because we're naked. And he asked this question, who told you you were naked? Relationship is breaking right here. When you read the book of Genesis, when I read the book of Genesis, I'm horrified. I want to scream at Adam and Eve, what are you doing So they're thrown out of the garden. They're thrown out of the presence of God. And God even sends a cherubim with a flaming sword so they cannot get back into the garden and eat from the the fruit of the tree of life. Relationship has been broken, but not before God gives a prophecy of how relationship will be mended. That there will be a seed of the woman and there will be the seed of the snake. The seed of the woman, his heel will be bruised by the snake, but the snake's head will be crushed, and that is Jesus Christ. There's hope of redemption. There's hope of paradise being regained. That there may be, that there may be redemption somewhere in the line. So we have Adam and Eve, and Adam and, and, and Eve, um, Adam enters Eve, and she gives birth to a son, Cain, and it is good. They've become a family. And she says, she rejoices, and she praises God, because through God's help, she has gotten a man. Not in our vernacular, meaning like a boyfriend. No, like she's given birth to a man, Cain. And she rejoices, and she has Abel, and they rejoice, and they are a family. And then 
Cain and, Cain and Abel, they present their sacrifices before the Lord. Abel's is accepted, while Cain's, God has no regard for it. And Cain, instead of finding or maybe bartering with his brother for a sheep so that he might have a sacrifice that God would regard, becomes envious and angry. And one day they're in the field and he kills Abel. And you can hear the echo of the voice of God in that moment asking the question, who told you you were, who told you you were naked? And every time we open up our newspaper, every time we see on Twitter a new shooting, a new tragedy, the terrible things that are happening, we can hear the echo of the voice of God asking the question, who told you you were naked? You were created for sin. You were created to be separate from God. But here, through our own action, we've become separate. And the voice of God who told them that if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. They have a dead son. And they hear the voice of God, and it is true. For when you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And their, and, their, and their family is then broken because Cain must flee. Because his other brothers and sisters, grandchildren, what have you, not grandchildren, sorry, um, nieces and nephews, if they see him, they may kill him and he's afraid of their wrath. But God, in his mercy and grace, God, through justice, should have taken his life for when you take an innocent life, your life should be taken. But God puts a mark on Cain, which is a blessing and which is a blessing and grace and mercy that whoever takes his life, God would take that person's life instead. We can fast forward through that, and we see the earth being populated by a great human family of many different peoples. And instead of using their instead of using their cooperation, their unity for blessing, they instead indulge their sinful nature and says that the thoughts and intention of man were always continuously evil so god being made sorrow and is very sorrowful and very spirit decides he is going to wipe, wipe the slate clean except for one family a man named noah who could hear the voice of the lord the rains come the door closes and noah and his family are on the ark and it is good they are a family who is obeying the word of the Lord. The rains recede. The ark is then, is then on a mountain. They get out of the ark. They, they start developing this new world now that is post-flood. And it seems like this is good. And then Noah one day decides he has too much wine. He is naked and one of his sons tells his other brothers about it and wants to make fun of their father. This is before the law was given, but in our very heart of hearts, we know it is wrong to dishonor our mother and father. There was no excuse. The curse comes from Noah to his son, and his sons disperse. They make new kingdoms. They come together in a place called Babel. And in Babel, it's one human family. And it says, the Lord says of them, nothing that they do would be impossible. And we read that and we think, yeah, they can build all these things. But what God meant by that was that no act of depravity was beyond their reach anymore. Because at the end of the flood, God says once again, that their thoughts and intentions were continually evil. That's not just before the flood, it's after the flood. And every day they're building this tower up to heaven to make a name for themselves. They can see the rainbow. And it makes you wonder, in their arrogance, did they think that there would be no judgment on them? So they build this tower, of, they build this tower and God does the, just a little bit of his power. He confuses their language and they're done. They're dispersed. 
what was good is now this family has now been broken. But now God looks towards this family, Abraham. And all families of the earth will be blessed through him. Abraham's family, it's not a, it's not a well-functioning family. It's actually it's very dysfunctional. As we go through the patriarchs, we're not going to glance over their sins, the ways that, ways that they failed to miss, they, they, the ways that they've missed the mark. In fact, we'll see with Abraham, actually next week, we'll talk about a time where he lies about his wife and basically prostitutes her out almost. And this is the guy who is the patriarch of the Jewish people. But here's the thing. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham and Sarah, his wife, decide they will try to help God. And they have Hagar, Sarah's servant, sleep with Abraham. And from that union came Ishmael. God told them, no, I didn't need your help. I will reckon your, your, your people through Sarah. And she gives birth to Isaac. Isaac has a wife of his own who deals with barrenness. And he actually commits similar sins to Abraham. You know, be careful what you do, parents. Your kids are watching you. And what you do will speak so much more than what you say. Because what you do, by the way, teenagers, are you thinking about your children? What a crazy, I used to say that as a youth pastor. My kids are like, what? Not that I'm aware of. (laughs) I'm like, no, what you're doing today creates a family story. And when you tell your kids about how much, you know, how, how much, you know, trouble you got into, they're hearing that and they're thinking, well, maybe I want to be like dad. Maybe I want to be like mom. What is your family story? What are the things that you're doing? Because your children may end up emulating that. It's very much like that song, The Cat's in the Cradle. We know how that ends. My, my boy is just like me. So Isaac gives birth to Isaac, I'm sorry, um, uh, Rebecca, um, sorry, yeah, Rebecca gives birth to Jacob and Esau. And between them, between these two brothers, things were good until Jacob deceives one too many times. He's very much like his grandpa Abraham and his grandma Sarah because they, him, and his, him and his mother try to help God with a prophecy that they heard. And it creates a rift between brothers, between family. Jacob leaves his family, and when he comes back, both his father and mother have passed on. They are then, him and his brother are reunited. But it wasn't until Jacob, his self, he had to die to himself and become Israel. And we call the state of Israel today Israel because of Jacob. Because he wrestled with God, and God gave him this new name. It seems like there is a mending of the family. Like I said before, Jacob, he deceived his father with his mother's help. And that deception didn't leave his house. In fact, his sons deceive him time and time again. They sell one of their own brothers, Joseph, to slavery. And the family is now broken once again because this is what sin does. It breaks relationship. In our first family, it broke relationship with God. Then when sin's in a family, it breaks that relationship as well until there's just one person who decides he will not stand in the place of God, will not seek vengeance, and that is their brother who they sold into slavery. And at the end of the book of beginnings, in in Genesis, at the very end of Genesis, you have this man who has been sold into slavery, been accused of the worst vile sins, but he was innocent, but he did not open his mouth, and all of a sudden, he is now in charge of the whole known world, and his brothers are worried, is he going to treat us the way we treated him 
just like every generation before us? Or will there be something that could possibly happen to mend us so they think we're going to lie to him? And, he, and, and Joseph, when he hears the lies, he weeps and he says, I, I, will, I will not stand in the place of God. What you meant for evil, God meant for the good. And it says he speaks kindly to them. And then finally, at the end of the book of the beginnings, this cycle of dysfunction and hope ends in hope because Joseph not just forgives, but embraces and lives with his, with his brothers, their sons, and their daughters. All that to say we are going back to the very beginning of that story of that family with Abram. Abram, he comes from a place called the Ur of the Chaldees. They are not... They are not worshipers of the true God. In fact, they worship a moon God. And it is in the Earl of the Chaldees where God, the Lord, ten generations after Noah is done being silent and speaks to Abram to leave his people, to leave his country, and to go to a place that he would have for him. There is a phrase you may have heard before that you need to leave your comfort zone. People always make that sound easy. Just, you need to leave your comfort zone and things, good things will happen. You know, somebody, there's, no more, there's nothing harder or more scary than to leave your comfort zone. People will stay in places that are almost unbearable because it's, it's familiar. We often wonder, we have the phrase, the elephant in the room. That phrase originally was about people who were in an abusive relationship. And when it all comes down, you're like, didn't you see the elephant in the room? And the response is, it was there when I got there. I thought it was part of the furniture. People, comfort is the, I don't, know who, I don't know if I came up with this term or somebody else has, but comfort is the enemy of change. Do nothing and nothing will happen. Do something and something may happen. Even if you just move out of your parents' place or into your, into your own for the first time, you understand how scary it is, let alone to move away from your parents, to move away from your family, everything that you know, to be a stranger in a strange land. And that is what God had called Abram to do, to leave his family and to go. To go where? Well, God tells him, I'll tell you. I'll tell you when you get there. That's a lot of faith. How would you like that? You get all established in one place and God's like, I want you to go to a place where they've never heard of an American. How does that go? And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a piece of land there. We'll see. I mean, not we'll see. You'll see. You'll see. Um, leaving safety of familiarity. Once again, there's this phrase about leaving your comfort zone. It's a lot harder than what it seems. I name this message here, um, get out for a reason. In the New King James Version, it reads in the first verse, uh, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Instead of go from your country, the New King James has uh, get out. I like that. You know, every, all, all the translations mean the same thing. God tells him to go. But I like, the, I like the vernacular of get out because I need to hear that sometimes. I don't know about you guys. When I'm in complacency, when I'm just in complacency in general and I'm not progressing in my relationship with God, or if I'm stuck in a sin, or like Abram here, partial obedience. I don't need God to say to me, okay, time to start moseying. I need God to say, get out! It's, it's more like, like you see those suspenseful movies and you're like looking at this person, you know, they know somebody's out there, they know it's dangerous, and they're just like wandering out and, you know, they're going to check out that noise and you're like watching from the audience, you're like, get out of there! What are you doing? There's axes out there! 
you read this part in, in, in Genesis, and to know before this, before what we read in chapter 12, God had already spoken to Abram to leave his family, to go to the place he's, he's called him, and Abram has not done that in 12. He's only done partial obedience, which really is disobedience. You want to say to him, because you want to say to yourself, get out. I need God to say that to me. Not just gently leave, but get out of your complacency. You'll see this past tense here in verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abraham. Something that this, it is past tense. To, use, um, to us, we miss this, but to the Jews, and we find this out in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, the first martyr, is giving his defense before the Sanhedrin. He says that while he was still in Mesopotamia, the Ur of the Chaldees, God had spoken to Abraham before he went to Huron, which is where we, where we come up to the story in chapter 12. We miss this. Um, they understood that Abraham had only partially obeyed God. Partial obedience is disobedience. Sometimes that's what we want to do with God. We're like, okay, God, I know that you've called me to be, live a pure life, but if I live a purer life than my neighbor, then you're cool, you're cool with that, right? And some people want to be like, well, God's just that hippie teacher. You do your best and God does the rest. So I'll give God some of my life, but I'm going to hold back the rest for myself. No, God demands it all. He's not done with Abram just because Abram had only partially obeyed. He reminds him again once his father dies, leave your people, go to the land that I will show you. He didn't leave his family. He went with his family. That's what we read in, um, in chapter 11 right here. Um, in verse, uh, verse 30 and 30, 31, that instead of leaving his family, he goes with his family. And lo and behold, when he compromised that part, here's the thing, when we, have to, when we have a command from God, if we compromise one part, it'll just lead to compromise, to compromise, to compromise, to compromise. And we'll look and we're like, I'm in Huron instead of Canaan. Abraham's life for this first part, Abram's life for this first, first part, will be marked by partial obedience, but we will finally, we will eventually get to chapter 15. And chapter 15 will give this verse that is the shorthand for salvation in the New Testament. Abraham believed God, and it was credited him as righteousness. In your life, before you knew Christ, did you have that moment where you kind of had this partial obedience? You came to church, you cared about maybe the things of God, but then you had the part where you really believed God, and now it was all or nothing. Abraham here, he gets, the, he gets the command from God to go to the land that God would, God would promise him to leave his family, and he only partially obeys. But once he believes God and it is credited to him as righteousness, he's willing to take his son, his only son, whom he loved, up to the mountain on the word of God. In Lord of the Rings, Bilbo says to Frodo, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet there's no knowing where you'll be swept off to. God is, uh, God is calling us on this great journey as well to get out of our complacency, to get out from amongst the world. 2 Corinthians six seventeen. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. We often conflate holiness with righteousness. Righteousness is doing the right thing. Holiness, it means to be separate. That's why God tells us to come out from amongst the world. We, people, we should not fit into the rest of the culture of this world. 
We shouldn't seek to be satisfied with the things of this world. When we are weary and heavy laden, if we go to this world instead of God, we fit in this with this world. But if we go out, if we step out in faith in the great adventure that God has called us to, that makes Frodo's little journey with the ring seem like small potatoes. You've been called to the greatest adventure, whether you stay here in Algona or wherever you're at for the rest of your life where God calls you around the world, God has called you spiritually to come out from among them. God has not called you to a stationary life. You should consistently be growing and going. We shouldn't be looking at what is easy, but what is right. And believe me, those two things are rarely the same thing. God has called us to live courageous lives. A life that others can look at and they can see this person has a God who is in heaven. They have a faith and a trust that they, I don't have. The context of chapter 12 right here is chapter 11. I know that's a duh thing, but chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is the context to, to the story of Abram's first journey out. His story is similar to that of Noah, a man who hears God's voice in a crooked and depraved world, not a perfect man, but a man who believes God and answers the call. Babel, on the other hand, the Tower of Babel, was man's plan to make a great name for himself. In Abram, in Abram we see God's plan. That's why in the first three verses, we have seven I will statements. God says, I will. Sometimes we put an overabundance of an importance on our activities, our agenda, and we should be looking at God's agenda because if God says he will, he will do it. Instead of making up our plans and like, God bless this, in fact, popular supposed prophet, he's a false prophet, um, had this statement this last week that, you know, you come to God with your plans and his will is going to become your will. No, my will needs to become his will. If, his will, if, my will be, if my will becomes his will, then that means I'm God. And he is saying, thy will be done. Instead of me saying to him, thy, your will be done. So this morning, as we look at the example of God's work in that of Abram, telling him that he, God will do these things in his life, I want to tell you something, get out. I mean, I don't mean right now. But get out and be courageous. Get out and be obedient. Get out and build an altar. Get out and be courageous. Verses 1 through 3. I said before, there is a, there is a context to chapter 12 here, and it's this, that God had already called Abraham out of the Ur, uh, Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees to separate from his family and to go to the land that God had given him. And Abraham did not do that. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, when he's giving his, his defense before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish elders, to which he'll be stoned by, gives the history of the Jewish people. Chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Abraham, the man of faith, does not start off as Abraham, the man of faith. He's Abram, and he's only partially obedient to the Lord. That's why in verse, verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord had said... 
to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. You know, I don't blame Abram because it is a scary thing to leave what you know, to leave what is familiar. And in Abram's time, there was safety in numbers and to go in lesser numbers than what you have that is somewhat concerning. I know we have a few of our kids who will be going into middle school next year. And I know they're very excited about this. Uh, Mel and Candy were telling me about this. And they're trying to warn them. It's like, then you're going to go into middle school and you're going to be the low person on the totem pole. In the era of the Chaldees, Abram and his family, they were, they were large and in charge. And Canaan, people are like, Abraham who? Abram who? He was afraid. He was legitimately afraid. Next week, we're going to talk about what, where his fear leads him to. He's, a fear, he's afraid that they're going to look at Sarai, his wife, and they're like, hey, she's hot. Let's kill him. He is afraid. But what we see in 12 is he steps out again in faith, though. Even though the, that fear is still there, he still steps out and to go to the land that God has called him to. It's terrifying to leave the familiar and venture into the unknown. It takes courage. It's courage that God will produce in him. Those who will... Those who will make up the population of hell are not the courageous, but the cowardly. So courage. Courage. What makes a king out of a slave? Courage. What makes the flag on the mast to wave? Courage. What makes the elephant charge his tusk in the misty mist of the dusky dusk? What makes the muskrat guard his musk? Courage. What makes the sphinx on the seventh wonder? Courage. What makes the dawn come up like thunder? Courage. What makes the hot and tot so hot? What puts the apron apricot? What do they got that I ain't got? Courage. How far into that before you figured out that was the cowardly lion? I always love, I always love bringing up that. Well, joking aside, Bruce Lee once said, courage is not the absence of fear, it is the ability to act in the presence of fear. Abraham, for whatever reason, does not enter Canaan in chapter 12, 11, but he enters in 12 with all the same fears and concerns around him. He decides, no, I will trust God more than my fear. God hasn't called you to be a coward, but to be, live a life with courage. In the natural and somewhat supernatural story of Ernest Shackleton and their journey in the, in the Antarctic, they spent two years shipwrecked in the Antarctic and didn't lose a single person. There's so many great quotes from that time. But I'm, always, I'm so impressed with everybody who was part of that expedition because they had this courage because they knew they were going into the worst place on the face of the earth and they were at least going to try to go across one end to another. They spent two years shipwrecked. Courage is not just inspiring. It is the... It is, the state that God has made us in, remade us into, he has called us to live a life of courage. Biblically, what is courage? It's when faith is greater than fear. Courage happens when faith is greater than fear. It's when the fear and love of God is greater than the fear and love of man, this world, this culture, or even ourselves. It's a life that has gained something that cannot be taken away that's what it is. But what does it look like? It looks like simple obedience of putting your one foot in front of another when God tells you, get out. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. The book of Hebrews tells us so much more than what we as 21st century believers would understand reading chapter 12 of Genesis. It says this in verses 9 and 10. 
By faith, he went to live in a land of promise as a foreigner, and, and, and a, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same prophets. Verse 10. For he was looking forward to a city that had foundations whose designer and builder was God. I don't remember every, the first time I read every Bible verse. I remember when I, the Lord first saved me, I was in high school. And we had reading hour, and I'd bring my Bible to it. And I'd read a verse out of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and Revelation. And eventually I just started reading Matthew. So I don't remember every verse I, I've, I've read the first time. I remember this one. I remember this one because when I read it, I'm not an emotional guy. But tears started running down my face, and I said to God, I get it. I didn't get it before. I used to read the Old Testament, and it seems kind of like a political book of why certain people have a right to this parcel of land. But now I read this, and I get it. He didn't want riches. He didn't want even the physical land. No, he wanted the Lord himself. He wanted God. And this is what filled him with courage. And a man who has this kind of courage, he can't be bought. He can't be threatened. He has this courage. And the story of, of Abram does not end with Jacob, with Isaac and Jacob. No, it doesn't even end with anything we'll read in the old, all of the New Te Old Testament or New Testament until we get to the book of Revelation. And there is a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be a city whose foundations and designer is the Lord. And the one who told him, get out, will wipe every tear from his eyes. And he will say to him, welcome to your home. And that's what he tells to us. Come out from among them. Get out from amongst this world. Because there is something better to be had. So by the time we catch up with Abram, we already know that he has not done things perfectly. In fact, you could say he has disobeyed God. He has a pagan past. He comes from a people who worship the moon. They then go to Huron, another place where they worship the moon. But your past, so he has a past. Your past can either be a guidepost or it can be a hitching post. You can allow your past to paralyze you and keep you where you're at. Or you can allow it to motivate you that, yes, I messed up in the past, but that's not my future. My past is just my guidepost. So I can tell other people, this is where I came from, but it's not where I'm going. The promise of God to Abram originally here, he's reminding him, is that he will be a great nation. And our answer to this, as we're reading this, of course, we know the rest of the story, but our answer, our question for this should be how? Abram's name means exalted father, which is a bit ironic because Abram is 75 years old. His wife is also old, past the childbearing age. She has dealt with infertility all of her life. And God tells him, I will make you a great nation. Is this a joke? No. For what is impossible with men is possible with God. Those were the words the angel told Mary. Here's the truth as well. You and I, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are heirs according to the promise. We are children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. You're a Jew. How terrible it is that the, the, the people called themselves the Church of Jesus Christ persecuted the Jews throughout history. When they're our cousins in the Lord, and we wish for them to come into obedience so that they may be our true brothers and sisters in the Lord. That the apostles, all of them were Jewish men. 
and we have heard the testimony of Jesus Christ through them. He promises to make him a great nation and to make, make, make his name great. In chapter 11, the people of Babylon wanted to make their town, they wanted to make their tower for a reason, and that was to make a name for themselves. And between Babylon and Abraham, we see what happens when people make their house and when God makes their house. When it comes to people making their house, it's Babel. Babel, we don't even know what their name was back then. We're, we call them Babel. It's a byword. We call somebody who's just, we can't understand them, who is this babbler? But Abraham, on the, other hand, on the other hand, everybody wants to be associated with Abraham. I remember I was over in Dubuque. There was this um, panel discussion. They called themselves the children of Abraham. So you had pastors, you had priests, you had imams. You even had like Buddhist monks, a part of this. Everybody wanted to say, Abraham is our father. That's the difference when you try to make your own name great as opposed to God making someone's name great. And let us not forget the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 3 contains the further blessing of a curse for those who would curse Abraham, Abram and a blessing for those who bless Abram. The promises of God are yes and amen. They do not go away. People who curse the people of Israel to this day will be cursed themselves. Anti-Semitism is not just nasty and wrong. It carries also a curse on it. But to those who bless the people of Israel, they will be blessed. Barnhouse, a theologian, says it like this. Historically speaking, nations that have treated the Jewish people well have often been blessed. When the Greeks overran Palestine and desecrated the altar in the Jewish temple, they were soon conquered by Rome. When Rome killed Paul and many others and destroyed Jerusalem under Titus, Rome soon fell. Spain was reduced to a fifth-rate nation after the Inquisition against the Jews. Poland fell after the pogroms. And Hitler's Germany went down after the most incredible terrible example of anti-semitism that has ever been perpetrated against the jewish people britain herself lost her empire when she broke faith with the jewish people abram's blessing goes beyond even just those who bless him but also he's to be a blessing to the world abram was not going to be blessed just for himself and to be a nation so he could be a nation but they were to be an evangelistic nation all peoples all nations all families were to be blessed through him. You know, you have any idea how far away you're from Israel? I was going to do the math on this, but I was like, no, you get it. You're pretty far away from Israel. But you are blessed through Abram today. You only know about Jesus Christ and are a Christian because Abram went out from the land of the earth of the Chaldees into the land that God had promised for him. You are blessed through the faithfulness because one man decided he would have courage and follow God's voice. You are blessed through Abram evangelism and missionary the missionary directive was god's plan not at the great commission but from the very beginning so go out and be courageous go out and be obedient well done is better than well said i've met so many people and they're so concerned about what god has for their future and i will ask them first what are you doing now are you being obedient now and a lot of people, they'll be living in sin. And I'll be like, do you think God is just going to be like, well, that's cool. Here, let me show you what I have for you. 
God reveals more of his blessing and his promise to Abram as we read through the chapters after he's obedient with what he already has. Are you being obedient with what God has already given you? Before we start looking to this, in fact, I think sometimes we use this idea of our destiny and of the, of the blessings that God will give us in the future to try to hide from the obedience we should have right now. When Abram went out in obedience, blessing followed. The greatest step and move you will ever make in your life is the first step in obedience. Obedience comes from faith, and faith comes from a trust in your heavenly Father. Pastor, one time I heard him say that we are hesitant to, we are hesitant to pray, thy will be done, because we are secretly suspicious of the Father's intentions towards us. Faith, real saving faith, is when we trust our Heavenly Father more than our own eyes or our own fears. It's like that Indiana Jones movie, The Last Crusade. He has a book from his dad, and he has to go through all these many dangerous things. And there's this one where there's just this big chasm, and the book tells him to take a step of faith. We can relate that to Abram, right? He has no idea what Canaan's like. In fact, it's a pretty bad place. God is actually raising up Abraham and his people to judge the Canaanites. But I digress. He is to step out in faith. He doesn't know what will happen. In the, in the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there's this part, this huge chasm. And the movie makers are great because I watched this the other day. I still cannot see the bridge. So when he steps out, every time I watch it, I'm like, <gasps> and then they show you there's this camouflage bridge. Indy doesn't know this. Indy's just trusting the word of his dad. When we step out, when we are obedient, it's because we trust the word of our Heavenly Father. That to step out in faith is greater than to stay in our comfort zone. In verse 5, we see that Abram gathers up all that he has and he leaves. This includes what he had acquired in Haran. But wasn't it disobedience to go to Haran? It was. So why is God blessing his disobedience God is not blessing his disobedience. God blesses us even when we are not perfectly faithful because of grace. If God had to wait to bless you for you to be perfectly faithful to understand all things in him, he'd just have to wait till you died before he blessed you. Sometimes God blesses us when we're being disobedient and we will mistakenly think, oh, that means my disobedience is blessed and God doesn't care. No. You keep living that way, there'll be a price. Abraham finds this out because even in his obedience, it's still partial disobedience. Because as we read on, we see one of the people in verse 5 that he, that's going with him is Lot. So every time I read this portion of scripture, verse 5, I get to verse 5, I always ask, what's Lot doing here? Didn't God tell him, leave your kindred, leave your family behind? Why is he bringing Lot with him? It's kind of like our partial obedience, right? We know that God has called us to live a pure life, a sexually pure life. But then we're like, okay, well, I can, I can compromise in these areas, and God's going to be okay with that because I'm giving a lot to the church or whatever I'm doing. And God's like, no. What does it matter if he brings Lot? And it's his nephew. He likes his nephew. Lot is not a blessing to Abram. He's a stone around his neck. His herdsmen, Lot's herdsmen, constantly fighting Abram has to win a war because Lot was so hard-headed about the things that he did. And if he had listened to God from the beginning, he would have been spared all those things. So Abram, even in this part right here, even though he is stepping out in obedience, 
still partial obedience. They get to a place called Shechem. Shechem means literally shoulders. It is a place of a, it's a valley. It's a place where Jacob digs a well. And many, many years later, the Savior will be at that well. And he will see a certain Samaritan woman who had been married many times. She will ask Jesus. Um, he'll, Jesus will ask her for water. And she will ask him, how can you as a Jew ask me as a Samaritan for a drink of water? And he says, if you would ask me, I'd give you waters of eternal life. She will ask Jesus, then she will ask Jesus about where, where's the right place to worship? Is it on a hill in, or in Jerusalem? And he will tell her that God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Abraham sees God again at Shechem, and he builds an altar because he wanted to be one of those worshipers. Verses 7 through 9. So I told you, get out and be courageous. Get out and be obedient. Get out and build an altar. While he's in Shechem, verses 7 through 9 here, he builds an altar. Abraham sees the Lord again, and he builds an altar. Where are altars for? Why should Abraham build an altar at the different places he goes to along the way in his obedience? The altar was important to Abraham, as it is to all people, because it is a place to meet with God, to, to offer sacrifices for sin, to show submission to God, and to worship God. Dear believers, even though we don't have physical altars, we have an altar. We have an altar, Hebrews 13.10. We meet with God at this altar, at our own place, where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ made for our sins, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, where we submit to God as living sacrifices, Romans 12.1, and where we offer the sacrifice of praise. Your altar is wherever you're at. Because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So wherever you're at can be an altar where you are a living sacrifice, where you praise, where you worship. For you, it's one inside. For him, he wanted to make an altar so that he could meet with God. So understand, his altar was physical, yours is spiritual. So if I go into your house and I find you have a bunch of altars in there, I know you weren't listening to my sermon. <laughs> He builds an altar because it's important to him to meet with God, even though he doesn't understand how his God wants to be worshipped yet. He builds this altar. We call the front of the church here an altar. But for you, you can make anything at any time your altar. Any place you meet with God, offer up your body as a living sacrifice, worship and social mission to God, that is your altar. In verse 7, we have God repeating to Abraham his promise. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Our God is a God of the impossible. If you were to choose somebody, a couple right now, and you're like, okay, I'm going to take them, and they are, going to be, they are going to be the first of an entire nation, would you choose somebody who is elderly and never had kids? I don't think I would. That doesn't make sense to me. But it makes sense to God, because nobody can say, oh, they built themselves. They have to acknowledge that there's something about th this couple right here. Their God's hand must be on them. As we dive further into Genesis in the coming weeks, we look at Abram and we will see that there are people and they just recognize that there is something about him, that the hand of God himself is on him and they will, make great, they will take great pains in order to bless him because they want the blessing as well. I think it's a very sad thing that even in church, we seem to have an expiration date on people's usefulness to God. I don't care how old you are. 
Abraham's 75 years old when he starts his journey with God. He'll be much older as God reveals himself through him. You know, there's a, a book from the 70s called Logan's Run. It's a dysutopic book in which people are executed at 30 years old. I think it's sometimes really sad because I'll go to conferences and they will make it sound like if you're above a certain age, God can't use you anymore. It's like, that's as nasty as Logan's Run. That's not how God works. God appears to Abram. God's starting to make a habit of appearing to Abram. It's not normal. The last time God actually spoke to somebody is 10 generations before with Noah. What does Abram get? In his entire life, God had promised him this land, but in his entire life, he gets one small part of land to bury his dead. Sometimes if God doesn't, we have promises of God in our life. Like I was called into the ministry early on in my life. But when I graduated college and I wasn't automatically a minister, it was hard for me to take. I was like, has God forgotten about me? Abraham's entire life, he doesn't take possession of the land. He gets one little portion to bury his dead. But he believed in the promise. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it says of the people of faith, they did not see it. They died before they, they received it. But they looked forward to this. They would say it's fine because our faith is not just about the promise. It's about the promise maker. And if you worship the promise instead of the promise maker, that's idolatry. Are you comfortable? I don't mean in your chair today. I hope you are comfortable. I think they're very nice chairs. Sometimes I just sit in them for fun when I'm at the office. I mean in your life, are you comfortable? Are you comfortable where you're at? If you are, it'll be very hard for you to want to change. It'll be very hard for you to leave the familiar, to venture out into the unknown, into the uncomfortable. And I don't mean leaving your town or leaving where you're at physically. I mean venturing into the promises that Christ has for you in evangelism, in prayer, in doing something incredible for the Lord because God has put that on your heart so that, he, so that you may extol his name and not your own. Abraham's an example that even though he was comfortable. He was not so comfortable as to stay where he was at. His aim was not riches. His aim was the Lord. His struggle, like we do, with what is comfortable and what brings comfort. C.S. Lewis says that if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was not made for this world. I hope you're not comfortable. I pray you're not comfortable. I pray you're not just satisfied with where you're at right now, but you, like the Apostle Paul, strive to grab hold of that which Christ has grabbed hold of you. To step out of your comfort zone into areas that would frighten the life out of you last year, but you are stepping into faithfulness this year. It may be just in the first step. You don't know the Lord. And you're at that precipice of knowing the Lord and not knowing the Lord, of jumping in with both feet or drawing back. Jump forward. Trust. It's going to be a long time before we get to chapter 15 in which Abraham is truly saved when it says he believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's going to be a long journey up to that point. Maybe you're on that long journey. I was working at Target. I've shared this story before. And my boss grew up in an AG house. And instead of working, I got to tell him about Jesus. I was between ministry positions, feeling kind of dejected. And God's like, not done with you. This is where I want you. 
Isn't that a sad thing? Sometimes we have our expectation, and if God doesn't meet our expectation, we think that God has forgotten about us, but instead, God has actually put us where he wants us to be. And I remember I'm talking with him. He's like, you know, something, it's not exactly what you're saying, but the, it's like, God is doing something in me. I feel like I'm on the edge of a cliff, and I just need to jump. And I'm like, jump. Have the courage. Be obedient. Build the altar. We are strangers and foreigners, too. Abraham was asked by God to leave the comfortable, to leave the familiar. He was somebody in his father's land, but he would be nobody in Canaan. God asked him to leave and become a foreigner, a stranger. And people are strange when you're a stranger. That's what God has told us to do. Paul the Apostle will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that while we are in our earthly tent, we groan and are burdened. We know that we are not home yet. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author starts to sum up the heroes of faith. He says that they speak as people looking for a homeland. They could have returned to the land that they had left, but they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Is that said about you, the people in your life? Do they see you as somebody who is not comfortable at home here, but somebody who is looking for a heavenly kingdom? Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's you and me, too. We are not of this world, but we are in the world. Let's never forget this is not our home. Our home is with the Lord. Worship team, would you come up at this time? Normally, during this part of my sermon, as I'm concluding, I do a summary and I do a challenge, but the challenge has been throughout this entire thing. I have a word for the Lord from you today, for you today. It's easy. Get out. Some of you, I don't know this, I'm not preaching at any one of you, so you're like, hey, you were going to keep that secret, I don't know. You're on the edge of doing something you know is wrong. I want to scream to you like I want to scream to Cain, get out. Get away from it. Sin is at the door, it crouches and it wants to have you. Don't let it have you. Get out. Some of you, you, had, you are living in the obedient life, but you know that there's something that God wants you to step in in faithfulness. Maybe it's something as small as helping in the nursery or teaching Sunday school or something to that effect. And you've been putting it on the back burner. I say to you today, get out. Be obedient. Be courageous. Yes, if you teach in this church, I'm going to hold you to the scripture and I'm going to help you grow. It may not be comfortable because we just want to be told all the time, yes, I'm 100% right, I have nowhere to grow, but I'm going to help you grow through that. So it might be frightening, but get out, be faithful. Get out and build an altar. When was the last time you had a deep, meaningful experience with the Lord? You know what's amazing in the Old Testament? One time a year, they could go into this place called the Holy of Holies. And I don't mean they, I mean one person, the great high priest. One time a year, he could go into the Holy of Holies. He could go before the Ark of God, which represented the presence of God, and make sacrifice for the people's sins. One time, the whole year round. But you, New Testament believer, you have inside of you the Holy of Holies. For the Spirit of God dwells in you. And in a church service, at home, before you go to bed, at work, when things are getting really dull or things are getting really exciting, you can close your eyes 
And you can walk past the outer courts, past the gates of praise, past the holy place, past the altar, and you can go into the very holy of holies, into the very presence of God. But for a lot of us, our relationship with God perhaps goes cold and stale, and we stay at the outer gates, and God is telling you, come in. Get out from where you're at and come in. Make a practice of the presence of God. Not just here at church, not when we're singing songs, with no music at home in the silence. You can connect with God in a way Old Testament believers would have given their eyes to experience. So this morning, get out. Would you please, we're going to be singing our last song. It's our moment to reflect on the message, to reflect on the Lord's words today from Genesis chapter 12. To have that encouragement as Abraham was told to separate himself from amongst his family, amongst his people, to go into the land that God has promised him. God has also called us to separate ourselves from this world and to be holy as he is holy. Would you please stand as we sing this last song?